Welcome to the Sports Forecasters Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. This podcast has been created not to dwell and over-evaluate what has already happened in the sports world, but to predict and to forecast what has yet to come. From game picks to draft picks, and from trades to free agent signings, we will let you know what happens before it happens. Your hosts, Nick and Nate, will evaluate, study, and understand sports patterns, tendencies, and nuances to better prepare you on what to expect, just like Weatherman, but way more accurate. So if you like to pick games or you simply just want to be in the know before anybody else, you are in the right place. Enjoy the show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of the Sports Forecasters. I'm your host, Nick Alvarez, and we're going to get started with a jam-packed episode of different happenings and events that have occurred in basketball and looking a little bit into the future. So what am I talking about exactly? This week, we're going to look at the All-Star Weekend, quickly covering the winners, and then I'm going to offer some suggestions to how we can improve the All-Star Game or things that need to have a slight modification to it to maybe help improve this event. Then I'm going to take an interview with a University of Michigan fan and talk to him and pick his brain about the situation with Jawan Howard, how the fan base has responded to it through his eyes, what their projection is, and also taking a quick preview of what the Big Ten tournament may hold. Finally, we're going to wrap the episode up with projections on my part because you got a forecast in a sports forecasting podcast. I'm going to make my second half projections of the NBA season. How are these last 20 games going to wrap up for teams? What is it going to look like for them? So we're going to take a look at that at the top four for the East, for the West currently as we stand. And then I'm going to give my end of season award picks for MVP, Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, Most Improved, and Coach of the Year. So that's what we have on the slate for today. Thank you for tuning in. The All-Star break has come and went. And for me, in terms of All-Star type festivities and activities. The NBA All-Star Weekend has always been one I have heralded as one of the better ones out of the major sports. Looking at the NBA All-Star break, even though it's one I enjoy the most, there's never a perfect serum or a perfect combination that occurs here. What we have here is five different events. You have your skills challenge, your three-point contest, the rising stars challenge, the dunk contest, and the All-Star game itself. And for this season, the Skills Challenge adds the unique twist of having three teams of three going again to each other with the Cavaliers team winning. Then you have the three-point contest with Carl Anthony Towns taking home the trophy in that one. The Rising Star Challenge, where you had Team Barry end up winning the four-team tournament. We had the dunk contest with Wide Toppin winning. And then the All-Star Game, where Team LeBron stayed undefeated. I would say, traditionally speaking, the three-point contest does a good job on what they do and what they present and how it's done. Rising Star Challenge was okay. It was very niche and a little bit too niche for what it needed to be. The All-Star Game was a glorified shoot-around, and for that, that's one thing that starts to make me look at the product and think maybe there are some tweaks. But the item that really pushes my notion that tweaks need to be made or something needs to be looked at is the dunk contest. So let's take this one step at a time. First, let's look at the Rising Star Challenge. I like the idea of the Rising Star Challenge involving more younger players in it. I thought that was a great idea. I thought they did 
a service to the sport to be able to showcase all this young talent the best they could by having four different squads. I do think the scoring and what you had to achieve was a little too on the nose for what they're trying to celebrate. Yes, the NBA really wanted to hammer home. It's their 75th anniversary, and that's something to herald, something to enjoy. But do we need our scoring to be derived from that? For me, no, not as much. You could have made that a 40-point game two times around, the same ending point for both games. Moving forward, I would like to see the Rising Star Challenge to be more of your developmental league players being involved in it. Because as the NBA, you really want to hammer home that your product is something worth watching from top to bottom. I think getting more of your G League or your lower league players in there the best you can will be the best way to get that product out in front of everyone for them to go consume. For my area, we have a team just 30 minutes away. If I had those players showcase more on the All-Star Weekend, that would definitely inspire those who consume the NBA to maybe go out there and see that game or see a game or two of that team. So what I'm proposing for the Rising Star Challenge is you have around six NBA rookies, an East team and a West team, and then their G League affiliates fill out the rest of the roster to have a two teams of 12 derived from the NBA and the G League. Then you bring in two international teams, maybe an international team from Europe and then an international team from Asia. And that's their young all-stars within a certain number of years of being a professional for their league, wherever you want the point of demarcation to be. And then they have their four-person tournament. You have the first night, the semifinals on Saturday night, maybe to start things off or maybe as the end event for that night. And then on Sunday for the first part, before you start the All-Star game, you have your championship matchup for the Rising Star Challenge. I think it would add a lot of international intrigue. It'd bring a lot of local intrigue for those G League teams. And also, it'd be able to showcase your rookies like you always want to. My next suggestion to improve the All-Star Weekend would be the All-Star game itself. It's cool to see these two team captains, the top vote go-getters, to pick their teams. But ultimately, we lose an identity of what we're cheering for with it. I think it would be best suited for the NBA to go back to its old format of East versus West, simply because that gives you an affiliation. It gives you someone to root for. It gives you someone to hang your hat with instead of just cherry-picking players that you like here and there. When an individual has a favorite team like I do in the East, it gives me a team that I can consistently root for, even if a member of my favorite team isn't there representing it. That would be my suggestion for the All-Star game is just return to an East versus West for a lot of these insights, said something about cash prize. I think for some of the competition pieces, that would work very well. However, the All-Star game itself, generally speaking, I don't know that it's going to work a lot to incentivize those stars to play with any more urgency than what they already wish to in an All-Star game. I think maybe adding a charity element to it, like where their charity earns or wins so much money might help that be a little more competitive instead of, like I said, off the top of shoot around where we're just watching everyone take all these ridiculous shots or are essentially unguarded until like the last four minutes of the fourth quarter. Because when you have two games of 160 points, it's no one's really trying to play the game of basketball as it's designed, even the NBA, by NBA standards. So that would be my suggestion for the All-Star Games, going back to an East versus West format. And then the last one, 
it's hard for me to say because as a kid, the era of Dunk was the biggest thing or the most exciting thing, the most captivating thing we had as young viewers of the NBA at that time. I think it's time that the Dunk Contest is relegated to every few years. I think we've saturated the All-Star game with it a bit too much, and the game has shifted more to skills and shooting emphasis than hammering it home. We might get excited when our favorite player or or when our favorite team has a breakaway dunk and we get excited about that and that can get the emotion pumped up. The dunk contest itself seems very seems like a mystery and at this point it shouldn't be much of a mystery or have to be relegated as do we have to go through this at this point? For the dunk contest, I think it's something that needs to go to a biannual or for special occasions, we bring in the dunk contest. People are just going through the motions. You're picking four to five or six or however many volunteer to come into this dunk contest and be a part of it. And no one's quite sure what the criteria is for them to win or what we're looking for. And I think that's the hardest thing for it. For common Joes or Jans that watch Summer Olympics, for example, a lot of us are lost with the scoring for gymnastics and everything like that. And that's almost how the dunk contest feels. We don't want to be guessing on how the winner is determined. We don't want to be guessing on what's going on with that. And that's my crude correlation with that. There's many people that know how gymnastics scored or how figure skating scored. And they can get, they can tell you they did really well or really bad. And I can tell if you did well or bad, but I'm not able to determine a winner very easily because they did this or that. Like three-point contest, it's very point A to point B. So for me, unfortunately, my suggestion would be dunk contest. Let's relegate you to here every now and then. Making it like this big event we could pump up coming around the corner might be something worth looking at. So those would be my suggestions to help tweak or modify the all-star. Again, to help improve the product, we need to look at tweaking it. I wanted to take a break from NBA real quick, a sidebar, and look at a different set of basketball and look at the recent incident in the NCAA involving Juan Howard and Greg Gard of Wisconsin. And to have an insight on that, I can have my own taken opinion, but I wanted to bring in a guest with this. So I brought in a University of Michigan fan who is an insider in the sense of he lives in the state of Michigan and a friend of mine, Tyler Princing. So Tyler, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always glad to have people on. With the Juwan Howard situation, we have two coaches that many feel like were in the wrong and could have handled it better. Really stems from a timeout situation with little time left with a big lead. And then coach getting in line, putting a hand on another coach and the other coach reacting poorly, just to put in a very simplistic term, because everyone's heard the situation. What was your feel when you initially saw the situation going on, Tyler? I was really surprised that I saw a hand flying across the pile of bodies there. But then to find out that it was Coach Howard, I was like, wow, that's uh, that's not, not a good look for him or for the, the university. When the team's just trying to find their stride coming into the conference tournament here in about a week or so. So I was just kind of like shocked, I guess. And I would definitely agree with that because I wasn't watching the game at the time. I actually got a message from a friend of mine just saying, have you seen what's happened? And for me, it was definitely surprising given the margin of victory. And 
maybe the blowouts are the more dangerous type games. We always think that close games are, but usually in the close games, consoling yourself with the fact that you've fallen short. After the situation happened, Tyler, and the punishments were dealt out. Juwan Howard has five-game suspension and a fine. A few Michigan players have one-game suspensions, and Greg Gard has only a fine. What were your thoughts on the punishments dealt out by the NCAA in the Big Ten? Well, I I thought it was pretty fair, actually, for Howard to get the rest of the regular season, which ended up being five games. Um, I saw on message boards, like, some people were wanting him to get fired and all this and that, and I was just like, you know, he's a man, he made a mistake. And, yes, he should be held to a higher standard because he is the, you know, the face of the program at a, you know, a prestigious university. So there's, you know, zero tolerance for those types of behavior. But at the same time, you got to take a step back and be like, okay, you know, he's just a man and he made a mistake and he'll learn from it and, you know, just do better next time. I was in a similar boat as that, not to just agree with you, but those that were calling for him to lose his job and everything like that, it's like, should he have done it? Absolutely not. But also, he has a situation with Maryland, which looked like he was more arguing. I don't know that I didn't watch it super close when I was going back to research for this, but it didn't look like he struck anyone, but he did get heated and get thrown out of the game. This situation, he did strike a coach, which is wrong, and he should be punished. The punishment didn't fit him being fired. If he would have hit a kid, I think that would be a different situation. If he would hit a student athlete, I should say, and he was unprovoked. But in this situation, I have to agree with you. I think him sitting out these last five games, getting a fine, sending a message. I don't, I honestly feel like he got the five games because he had that previous incident last season with Maryland and having just that confrontation. He didn't have a physical confrontation, but he still had a confrontation where he had to be thrown out of that game. I think that's why his became a little stiffer besides the fact he made contact with an assistant coach. Right. So with this going forward, do you feel like Greg Gard should have been suspended as well? Yeah, I probably would have given him, a, given him at least one game just because, you know, he did put his hands on him and he's the one that kind of started the altercation because from what I saw, it looked like Howard was just like, okay, game's over. And he, you know, tried to continue in the handshake line and then Gard actually physically stopped him to try to explain to him why he called the timeout. And, you know, that's kind of how it all started was because Howard was mad that guard called the timeout and then he put his hands on him and then you could tell Howard was visibly upset about it so um, I would have given him probably at least one game along with the fine yeah for me like you described it he was trying to explain to him and as a coach myself I'm well obviously I have a podcast so I like talking so (laughs) for me I would be one if I did something that I could tell because even the commentators were commenting how Juwan Howard's upset about the time on everything like that. I feel like being the coach I am for the sports I am, I'm always about trying to develop my next level, not just my starters or my top guys or girls. I want to develop the next line of them as well. And so with him calling the timeout, I can understand Juwan being frustrated, but also in the, in the, context of being a coach and trying to develop your athletes i understand why greg wanted to do it he didn't want to put his guys in a bad situation he wanted to develop them get them ready because wisconsin's a program that you don't recruit one and done generally speaking most of your guys are there for two three four years so for him to call the timeout 
if it was a conference tournament or March Madness tournament, then that'd be ridiculous. It'd be like, dude, just get over yourself. But with it being a regular season where it's one of your last opportunities to give your backups those opportunities, those quality minutes or opportunities to go through scenarios. I I feel like his timeout, maybe some are ridiculous, but I feel like he's just trying, like he said, trying to play the game in the situation. And as a coach, I would want to explain to the opposing coach, not to cause a confrontation, because I don't believe that was his intent. Obviously, right. I don't know what was being said, but I feel like Greg was just trying to talk to him and just trying to, and he stopped him because he didn't want him to blow by. He didn't want to have those animosity and bad feelings going to the tournament, right or wrong. Right. I could right. see his side of it just being a coach from it and just yeah. trying to help keep that good relationship. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as well. Um, I guess also I see it from the point of view of I don't know how many seconds and left were in the game, but you know, it's just like okay, so you might get a 10-second call, and then, you know, Michigan has the ball for 15 seconds or whatever, and they might get one or two shots up, and then the game's over, and you win by, you know, 12 or 15 or whatever it was. So if it was, like, a closer game, then I can see why, you know, trying to put your players in the right spot and trying to, you know, coach them uh, for the future generation like you're talking about. Um, but with – it was like a 15 point game, I think. So, I mean, at that point, it's just like under a minute to go, you can pretty much just take a shot clock violation for like one or two possessions and then the game's over. Um, so I, I, I see both sides of it, but I also feel like guard could have just waited to the, after the game press conference to like explain what he was trying to do. And then Howard could have received it better. And then they wouldn't have had that physical altercation. But um, I mean, what's done is done and they'll both learn from it and move on and hopefully do better. Absolutely. And that's what your hope is for the young men involved with it and the coaches involved with it, because I would anticipate both these coaches being around for a number of years yet to come as long as they want to keep going after it. So what my next question for you, Tyler is Patrick Ewing came out coach of George head coach of Georgetown saying that maybe we need to get rid of this handshake line. Maybe it's time we don't have it anymore. We got rid of it. We didn't do it last year because of COVID and trying to keep everyone safe. And we brought it back again this year after number, after having it for a number of years. And he feels like there's a lot of emotion after the heated game. He thinks maybe it's time we just do away with it. That way we don't have people in this position to where they possibly lash out. Well, Ohio State's coach Holtman thinks it's a worthwhile exercise to help people learn to manage their emotions after a game, win or lose, to deal with it. So for my question for you, Tyler, is what side of the coin do you fall on? Do you fall on Patrick Ewing's side where you think maybe it's something we need to get rid of and they can maybe meet up later, not in front of everyone? Or like Chris Holtman said for Ohio State, it's worthwhile exercise for teams to still do that congratulate each other and learn to deal with the situation after it's resolved? Uh, well, I don't think they should get rid of it, but if they want to do something different, I grew up playing travel soccer and some of the seasons and some of the teams we play, they would do it before the game, um, you know, just line up and say good luck. So that way, if, you know, things got heated during the game, then it would avoid any potential conflicts um, after the game. So I, I definitely don't think you should get rid of it, but I agree with the Ohio State coach, though, you know, to teach, you know, student athletes is what they are, 
to control their emotions and keep them in check. So I don't think they should get rid of it. Yeah, I, I definitely like that interesting take of having it maybe at the beginning of the game where you're you're not as chippy, you're not as chomping at the bit, you're not you don't have that adrenaline. You're yeah. kind of, you're getting ready to build up for that. So yeah, that might be something worth looking at. I'm more in the favor of keeping it the way it is, just shaking hands or maybe just waving at each other. Maybe not shaking hands. Yeah. Just kind of waving past each other saying good luck or whatever. But I definitely think that congratulating each other after a game is a good way to move forward just because I know we want them to pour their emotion and their heart into these. But also at the end of the day, we need to take that moment, take that deep breath and understand they were just a better team or they got the, out the win this time and we just have to keep marching forward. Exactly, yeah. And I know that um, sometimes in hockey, you know, they'll like, you know, wave their sticks at each other, you know, across the ice. Instead of, you know, like doing the traditional handshake after a game, they'll just, you know, wave across the ice at each other. I feel like it's going, it's here to stay the handshakes, but it was interesting perspectives. So now that we've moved on from that situation, I'm going to give you a chance to crystal ball here, Tyler. I want you <laughs> to give me the Big Ten tournaments just around the corner. Going into it first, how do you how do you feel Michigan season has went thus far? Do you feel like they're on par to what they did last year, a bit short, or maybe they're just a little under the radar and everyone's taking them for granted? Um, there's no doubt about it. Just look at their record that they've definitely underachieved this year, um, especially with the number one recruiting class in the nation coming in, or maybe it was number two, of neck and neck with Gonzaga. They definitely have lost some games that they should have won. I know earlier in the year they lost to Minnesota, which is a really bad loss because Minnesota is like, I think, either last or second to last in the Big Ten right now. And then just some other games, too, that they could have probably won, but ended up on the losing end. Um, so they're, they're definitely getting better over the last couple games here, but, um, they still have a lot to prove with, I think four games left before the conference tournament to, to see if they can, um, uh, make some noise and possibly, you know, make the big dance. But right now I would probably put them on, you know, on the outside looking in versus, um, you know, being, being in there already comfortable. Yeah. Um, slightly above 500 record. I know they're four games currently above 500, but being that close, it, yeah, it makes it, like you said, dicey. You, you're you going to have to make some noise in this Big Ten tournament. So I'm going to let you ha make two predictions here because I'm going to make mine next week. But since we have you here, Tyler, I want you to make a prediction. Who is your Big Ten tournament favorite, and where do you see Michigan placing? Um, I would say the favorite probably would be Purdue. Um, they They just have a lot of size. And I, I can't remember their guard's name, but he's really good. He's probably going to be a lottery pick. Um, but between the, the big guys and that guy, they're usually pretty solid. Um, so I think they're probably going to be the favorite. And then as far as where Michigan's going to end up, I could see them making it to Friday, possibly Saturday, but I don't think they're going to make it all the way until Sunday in the championship game. So I'd say probably top four, maybe five or so. I would say that's a fair, like you said, they've lost some tight ones and they're learning from that. So maybe they turn it on there. We've seen tournament runs where it changes a team's outlook to making it to the big dance. So we'll definitely stay tuned and I'll give my predictions for those next week. But we're penciling you in, Tyler, as Purdue is the favorite. But 
we're going to go ahead and put a pin on that for now after looking at the Juwan Howard situation, kind of the state of Michigan basketball right now, and Tyler's early prediction of who the Big Ten tournament champion will be. We're going to go ahead and let you go. Tyler, thank you so much for being on for this episode. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Go Blue. Thank you for joining us, Tyler. It was great to have you on board, and we'll see how that prediction for the Big Ten tournament turns out. Now, our last basketball topic for the day. We're going to be looking at the the current state of the NBA. How are things looking to finish for the East and the West, and who are going to bring home the end-of-season hardware for us? First, let's look at our top four teams for each side. In the East, beginning of the season, I said the Bucks, Nets, Heat, and Celtics were going to be the top four teams in early November. Looking back at it, for the most part, I'm going to stick. I'm going to hold serve with that. I think the Bucks end up becoming first. I think coming off that championship, they start a little sluggish, but as of late. I'm feeling more confident about how they look defensively. So I'm keeping the Bucks at one. At two, I have the Heat. Currently, the Heat sits at half a game out of first place with the Bulls leading. I think the Heat hold on. They've had the Bulls number a few times, and I think they just do enough to hold on to the number two spot with close behind them, the Chicago Bulls. Chicago Bulls have a... Everyone has a challenging road. I just feel like Chicago, their ascension... To where they are right now is nothing short of great for the team, the franchise, and the league itself. But I just think in the end, they end up falling just a little bit to the third seed, seeing the Bucks one more time and seeing the Heat two more times, or vice versa, I, I think will be the ultimate reason why they end up three. At the Celtics at four, simply because I like to try to keep my picks close to what I had originally. So with that one tweak, with the 76ers just being the first team out of the top four. The reason I have the 76ers just outside the top four is Joel Embiid's history has shown that he needs time off to manage himself and to keep himself preserved for playoffs. And if you're fighting for a four or five seed here along the stretch, 76ers are fine being a five seed. It's essentially being your four seed in the end. So I think they stay a five seed simply because resting Embiid and making sure he's ready to go. And taking on James Harden, it's going to be interesting to see the dynamic. There's going to be games where they look lights out and they're going to take on, they're able to take on the world. And there's going to be games where it's head scratching. It's like, hmm, did they make a mistake? Not to let myself off the hook, but I do end up seeing the Nets being in the top eight when Kevin Durant comes back. The question is, how soon he comes back? Will vary where he is. Currently, I have them penciled in at six, but I could see them dropping to where they currently are in the 8th seed and staying there if Kevin isn't able to come back quick enough. Jumping over to the west side of the conference, in my early predictions, I had the Jazz, Lakers, Nuggets, Suns. Well, two of the four, I'm going to keep up there. Except I have the Suns staying at one. They are just so well-rounded, so consistent, and just so well-coached that I just don't see them letting go of that first spot. It would have to be one of the biggest collapses. Despite the Chris Paul injury, they are very well could see themselves back in the finals. Moving on to my second and third place team, this is really a coin flip for me. This is more of how confident do I feel about these teams. I feel like for the West Conference, you have your top team in the Suns, then you have your second tier teams with the Warriors and Grizzlies, and then you have your third tier where you have like your Jazz, your Mavs, your Nuggets, who to some degree the Timberwolves, 
and possibly the Lakers if they can start riding the ship there as that third tier of teams that are kind of rolling themselves to like a ping pong machine. So right now we're looking at the second tier of teams. Who is going to be the top of my second tier of teams? Is it going to be the Warriors or is it going to be the Grizzlies? And because of veteran experience, championship experience, and the pedigree that they have rightfully earned, I'm going to say the Warriors edge out the Grizzlies. Grizzlies, just like the Bulls, have been a great story of how they've ascended and how well put together and how consistent they, how consistent they have been throughout this season. I think that toughness keeps them close with the Warriors, but ultimately I think the Warriors go second, the Grizzlies go third. And then have the Jazz fourth, simply put because of their past season consistency. This team has a good foundation. They know their identity. Everyone knows their roles especially Rudy Gobert, and I think they hold on to that four seed. Because Mavs, Nuggets, Lakers, Timberwolves, you name the team below them, and I don't think on a night-in, night-out basis for these last 20-some games, they're going to be able to overtake the Jazz. It'll be close, but I think the Jazz hold on to that ultimately. So those are my top four teams for the East and the West. Now let's move on to NBA hardware. And I'm going to jump around. There's no real rhyme or reason to which award I talk about or who I pick. So to start things off, most improved. And most improved for me, if I was able to determine who is going to get it, would not necessarily be on your change in points or assist or any kind of stat category we, that's tangible for us to look at. This would be more of, I say emotional award, but this would be more of optics award. And for me, this award would go to DeMar DeRozan if I was able to change how this award was presented. He has shedded the I'm a very good stat player. I can contribute to the team very well until playoff run. And that's about the end of his resume. He needs a solid team around him. He does have that solid team around him, but optics-wise, he's he looks like he's doing very well in the bowl situation. And he's trying to show those naysayers when he was signed why they spent the money they did for what he was. So optics-wise, I think he's most improved, but stat-wise, I don't think he's going to get this award at the end of the day. I think it's going to be Ja Morant. Like I spoke before, the Grizzlies have improved tremendously from last season, from being that team that is kind of getting in to a team that's firmly in the hunt or one of the top spots in the NBA. So I think Ja Morant gets the most improved award if I was to make a prediction. Six man a year, this seems more like a formality based on what I'm seeing based on different lines and articles, the Vegas line especially, Tyler Hero is going to win it. He's short of just being a starter, and I think that doesn't change the course, and that earns him sixth man of the year. Defensive player of the year, be anticlimactic, but I think he's very deserving of it. I think Rudy Gobert gets his fourth defensive player of the year at the end of the season here. He is just a handful when you're trying to produce offense against the Utah Jazz, and I think the NBA recognizes that. A lot of experts early on had Draymond Green as a favorite, but with his injury issues, I think that opens the door for Rudy Gobert to get, earn his fourth defensive player of the year. Then we have Rookie of the Year. This one is absolutely a neck-and-neck neck race. It just depends on who gets on the hottest streak down the stretch. You have Evan Mobley of the Cavs, Cade Cunningham of the Pistons, and you have Scotty Barnes on the Toronto Raptors. All three gentlemen are very deserving. Stat lines are very close. Points are within a point, the point and a half of each other. Same can be said with other parts of the stats, like rebounds and assists are very close as well, with 
their positions take an effect of how far that difference is. So for me, I think in the end, Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley are going to be the top two contenders based on how their teams are doing. I know that doesn't always determine rookie of the year, but when your stat lines are that close, I think the voters are going to look much closer at what your team does and how they finish the season. So for me, I think it's going to be Evan Mobley because Scotty Barnes is part of a Toronto Raptors team that has been in contention the past eight or so seasons. So I think Scotty Barnes kind of falls into the a victim of his franchise being successful the last few years, where Evan Mobley is part of a Cleveland Cavaliers team that nobody had very high hopes for. Last season, bottom of the East, or towards the bottom of the East, and this season, they currently stand at being fifth in the NBA. So with that rise to ascension and him being a big part of that, I think Evan Mobley ends up being your rookie of the year. Moving on to league MVP. Currently, Joel Embiid is favored to be league MVP, but like I mentioned before, of my reason of making the 76ers the fifth team, especially if they're fifth team, I don't think Embiid ends up winning the MVP. Simply wear and tear has not been kind to Embiid, and he smartly takes time off to help preserve himself for the playoffs because for him, he wants that ring. I do not fault him at that. So he ends up losing the MVP, in my opinion, by the end of the season. And it's going to be between Jokic and Ante Tukumpo. I think these two gentlemen provide a lot to their team. I think you should give it to Jokic, simply because without him, the Nuggets are nowhere near the top. The same case could be made for the Bucks, but I feel like now they have a much better team than what they had in past seasons where... Giannis had to be the number one guy. Giannis is still the number one guy, but the team does not rely on him as much. Jokic is a part of the Nuggets team that really needs to bring more stars in or figure out some kind of situation where they can help him out because without him, this team is not a playoff team. So I believe he gets his MVP award this season. Moving on to the coach of the year. This award for me is between two coaches. Yes, the Suns coach would be in high contention, but I think they're going to look at how well a team has improved from last season. The Suns were one of the top teams in last year's NBA playoffs, obviously making the finals. So I don't think he ends up getting it. I think it's going to be between Taylor Jenkins, the coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, and Billy Donovan, the coach of the Chicago Bulls, where I have the teams finishing. I think that ultimately decides. And I think when they make this final vote of who's going to be coach of the year. They're going to look at last season. Grizzlies were the 8th seed last season. Bulls were the 11th seed. Both teams are in the top three of each of their conferences. The biggest rise from one season to the next would be the Chicago Bulls. So I think Billy Donovan ends up winning coach of the year. Taylor Jenkins, very deserving to be considered. But I think in the end, Billy Donovan ends up winning it. And those are my picks for the end of season awards. After taking a look at the All-Star game, some tweaks and changes, the Jawan Howard situation, and then finally how the season's going to end, who are the top four of the teams in the East and the West, as well as end-of-season awards, that's going to put a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Sports Forecasters. I'm Nick Alvarez, and we'll see you next time.